title of my message today is Helping Us See. We really do need to see. There are a lot of things that are all around us. It seems like that we don't notice, that we don't see. God is doing all sorts of things around our, our daily lives. He's doing things on the national scope. He's doing things all around the world. And we want to be cognizant of those things that, that he's doing. And we want to see what we can do to be a part of the ministry and mission that our Lord gives to us. One modern-day skeptic has said that he would believe in a miracle if it would meet three criteria. First, it had to be performed before a committee of competent judges. That's number one. Number two, the judges would have to have the opportunity to test what had happened to make sure uh, that it was real. And thirdly, the miracle should be repeated before them at their request as many times as needed so that they could make sure that everything was done correctly. Well, these conditions are, of course, impossible. Uh, For if they were met, the happening would not be a miracle. It would simply be another human accomplishment that we could be, that we could reproduce time after time after time. If you want a miracle in the Bible that just leaves the skeptics and the cynics speechless, uh, we're looking at it today in John 9. Uh, This ninth chapter of John in, in his gospel, it does it. It sets the skeptics and the cynics uh, back. And what is one of the longest detailed miracles in all the scripture, the evidence is carefully sifted. The objections to it are clearly wrong. And the event is publicly accepted as true by the many, many folks that were standing around watching this happen. It is turned inside out by the skeptics who exhaust every effort to shake its validity. Yet, after all the critical attacks that the Pharisees made, after all of the cross-examination that they were involved in, after all the careful analysis, the fact of the miracle stands unshaken before all of those that were there And upon us, as we read about it and know about it, from the testimony of those that write the Word of God. This is truly one of the great miracles of the New Testament. First of all, this man had a desperate need. There was no question about that. Verse 1, let's look at that together. Verse 1 says, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, eye defects were very common in the first century. Uh, there weren't a lot of eye doctors around, and they just didn't know what to do for the uh, illnesses of the eye that came upon people. One historian stated that you could meet at least a hundred blind men if you walked one afternoon on the streets of any ancient city. Blindness was very, very common. This, however, was not just an ordinary 
eye problem. It was not uh, something that he had suffered uh, just a few months. It was not a temporary situation, nor had his blindness recently come upon him that day or the day before, something like that. This man had been blind from his birth. He had never, ever seen anything, not one thing in his whole life. And verse 32 declares that there had never been a case of complete healing for a man that was born blind. So this really was a powerful miracle. And all the people that were there, we don't know exactly how many were there, but it was a large crowd. They saw it happen. They knew it was real. And as this man looked around and focused in on on each one of them, they certainly knew uh, that this was true and done by the Almighty Lord. Evidently, the man had searched for healing everywhere. I'm sure his family had contacted uh, health centers around in that area. Uh, What kind of doctors they had, we don't know. What kind of medical assistance they received, we don't know. But I'm sure they had checked all of that, that out to no avail. There was nothing for him, nothing to help him. Other forms of eye problems were curable, but if you were born blind, it was a permanent condition. Now, this is the point. This man had a problem that was permanent, a problem from which there was no known cure. How many times do we find ourselves in that exact kind of predicament? How many times do we find ourselves in a situation where we just can't see what it is that we're supposed to do or where we're supposed to go or whether or not we're supposed to say this or that or the other? How many times has a problem plagued us for a long time in our life? Maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe longer. We have investigated perhaps every possible solution for what's wrong with us. We have followed up every promising lead. And yet when all of our searching is over, the problem is still there. and There seems to be for us no hope. It may be some physical problem, like the man in this miracle in John 9. There are, in the United States today, over a half million people that are totally blind. And the statisticians tell us that in the next 10 years, there will be another half million people that will be totally blind. One out of every 13 American is handicapped in some serious way. One out of every four living Americans will sometime during their life fall victim to cancer. And I'm sure you have heard those numbers before and are aware of them. Sometimes it's a physical problem which has us in its grip and leads us feeling just totally helpless. It may be some mental problem. Doctors say that 30 to 50% 
of the people that come to see them really have nothing physically wrong with them. It's just in their head. They think something is wrong. When my mother uh, was quite elderly, every day she came up with a new disease or problem that she had. And when I got there to see her, she would tell me all about it, where it hurt and how she needed to go see a specialist to take care of whatever it was. And then the next week, of course, it would be something else, something different. At least one in every hundred of any population is permanently suffering from a severe mental uh, disorder. Now, the FBI makes it even worse than that. The FBI says that one out of ten Americans are seriously mentally deranged. So you can just look down the pew there where you are (laughs) and count... Some of you are pointing, that's not nice. (laughs) We might be having some family problem. Last year, over a million couples in the United States got a divorce. Of those that stayed together, according to competent family researchers, only 25% were satisfied and fulfilled by their marriage. Children continue to run away from home in increasing numbers and percentages every year. And the generation gap continues to widen. Or we might be having some spiritual problem. Ours is a day where there is a lot of emptiness and guilt. Dr. O. Hobart Maurer uh, said, It is not frustration from the things that we want to do and cannot, but it's guilt over the things which we have actually done that is the cause of the major neurosis that we might have in our life. Emptiness and guilt are spiritual issues that we need to see our way out of. One lady was explaining her bashed-in car to her husband. She said, well, I was backing out of the driveway, and I was looking both ways. I wanted to see what was coming, and come to find out, it already had come, and it hit my car. We know how she feels. Every morning we get up, we go outside, and we don't know what's going to hit us. We don't know if there's going to be a screaming, deserted child. We don't know if there's going to be somebody cussing violently uh, in our immediate presence. We don't know if somebody that looks real strange is going to walk up and say some uh, bizarre, absurd thing to us, and we don't quite know how to respond to it. We don't know what's going to happen. We're faced with problems, problems that are very difficult, problems that seem to have no solution. I don't want to overdo this Dallas thing, but to me, 
that was just unbelievably horrible. Uh, for a fella to be up at a high position and, and to just shoot people uh, uh, like fish in a, in a bucket. I mean, it's just unbelievable what happened. I really believe that every time we see a policeman on duty, we need to say to them, thank you. Thank you for keeping our society from anarchy. Thank you for standing between us Thank you for standing between us and the anarchists that want to kill us and kill our way of society. You know, I feel the same about our soldiers that are on a distant field. Soldiers that are out there uh, wondering if that was going to be the day that they were going to be shot. Folks, we owe these people a great thanks. I'm hoping that hundreds if not thousands of policemen will not resign. You know, when the populist uh, stands out there and mocks them and does chants against them, and you don't feel appreciated, uh, what, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, in whatever line of work that you were in, people probably didn't come into the door of wherever you worked and chant against you. Well, they do that against policemen and against our soldiers. And we need to either stand with them and pray for them and do all that we can or create some way that we can be helpful to what they're about. Like the man in the scripture, we are confronted in our country by a desperate need. Anarchy literally is spreading around the world at this very hour. Uh, these Muslims, radical Muslims, as I have said many, many times, they're out to kill every one of us. Christians and Jews, there's an there's a X on our head. They want us dead, every one of us. And they're not going to quit until we are dead. They're not giving up. If you go back and look at the history of what radical Muslims have done through the, the decades, I mean, this is not something new. They've been at the same task all along, and they're coming for us. A second thing that we see in the text is a disturbing question. Look at verse 2. The disciples turn to Jesus and they say, Rabbi who sinned here, this man or his parents? Was it his fault that he was born blind? That disturbing question, of course, is raised in every generation. We see the sufferings of humanity, and we say, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? What caused this to happen? Now, Two common answers are given in our text this morning. One is that suffering comes because of something that we have done. The second answer is that it is heredity. That is, our parents sin, and we have to suffer the consequences for what they did. It's true that much of our suffering 
is caused by our sin. A young person that goes out and uh, puts needles in their arms and other places and just loads their body up with drugs, they, of course, destroy the young person's mind. Uh, All of these drugs uh, just make it worse and worse and worse, and their habit gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Well, that young person has no one to blame but himself for what has happened. Many of our handicaps, on the other hand, both physical and mental, can be traced directly to the actions of our parents. Drugs of all types, once again, cause all kinds of problems. I don't know the the latest statistics on how many crack babies are being born, but there are thousands upon thousands of them across this nation every week. Thousands and thousands. And of course, they can't adjust. They can't fit in. They're not normal. The crowd pushes them to the side. The classmates, where they attend school, don't want to be around them because they've been damaged. They've been hurt. They're not normal, and not because of something they did, but because of what their parents did. I want you to notice that in our text, Jesus does not give an explanation for suffering. He doesn't say, this is why that happens. He doesn't do that. Instead, he tells us two things about it. First, Jesus says, look at verse 3. Jesus says that sometimes the end result of suffering is that God is glorified. He just tells them that. The end result is, through your suffering, that God will be glorified. I imagine everybody in the room this morning has been to the hospital. And you've been not a visitor, but a patient. Maybe you spent uh, long weeks or months at home in a bed. As that happens to each one of us, we begin to look up at the ceiling and we begin to wonder, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? And we go back and we think about our life and we think about uh, some of the criticisms that we've gotten during our life and we wonder, well, maybe they were right. Maybe I am doing the wrong thing. Maybe I am living in the wrong way. And we begin to think about, well, do I need to change something? Do I need to become uh, tougher? Do I need to study more? Do I need to become smarter? Or do I, like those Christians tell me, do I need to trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior and, and become a Christian and become more Christian each following day? Sometimes when people are on their back and they're not in a hurry and they don't have 15 appointments that day and they've uh, dealt with the newspaper in 10 minutes and they've looked at the TV all they want to and they think about, well, what do I need to do with my life? What, what, what change do I need to make? Is there something that God is trying 
to tell me during this time when I'm laid up. You know, there's some people that do rededicate themselves to the Lord when they're in the hospital. There's some that redirect their paths while they're in the hospital, while they're at home in bed. They have time to think, time to pray, and they make some wonderful decisions. And through that suffering, God is glorified. The second thing that Jesus says about suffering is this. The approach of the Christian to suffering is not to speculate about its origin. Secondly, we are not to scrutinize its distribution. That isn't going to help. But to seek to do something about it. We can do that. We can make a decision in our life as to how we could glorify God more, and then we could make a plan for what we were actually going to do to bring that about, to make that happen. That would be a wonderful thing. In verse 4, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. In other words, Jesus is saying, we need to get with it. We need to do something about that which would glorify God in our lives. So when we are confronted by a difficult need in our life, Jesus says the question that we are to ask is not whose fault is this, but rather how can God be glorified through this? And what can we do about it? Those are the two things that we need to say. Notice the divine healer. Notice Jesus, what he's doing in John 9. Here's a man with a very difficult need, a need that seems to be permanent and incurable, and Jesus reaches out, touches him, heals him by the grace of God. We see how Jesus did it in verse 6. He spat on the ground. He made clay of the spittle. He put it on the man's eyes and he told him to go and wash himself in the Siloam River. Now we don't know why Jesus did it that way. We can speculate about it all we want to, but we're never going to know exactly why he did it that way. We are sure about this. Here was a a man that was blind that could now see and that Jesus did it. Those are the three points. Those things are obvious. It was not the result of some cornea transplant. It was not a cataract extraction that did it. It was the result of the healing power of Jesus. No longer would this man be denied seeing all of the beauties and wonders of nature. This man no longer would have to sit on the dirty streets of Jerusalem, sit in the filth that was there, and call out to passers-by, would you give me a coin? I need a coin. I'm out of money. I'm out of food. Would you please help me? He wouldn't have to do that any longer. And his world would not be totally black. He couldn't see anything any longer. All of those things would be changed. His healing gave glory to God, and Jesus did it. 
Remember this. Whatever your problem, whether it's physical or mental or family-related or spiritual, Jesus can deal with it. He is the supreme optometrist who can open our spiritually blind eyes. He is the divine counselor who can bring our family back together again. He is the incomparable psychologist who can straighten out our disturbed minds. He is the great physician who can cure our physical maladies. In verse 25, we see that the Pharisees demanded, they demanded that this man who was blind, who could now see, they demanded that he say that Jesus was an imposter and a sinner. And they were screaming at him. They were yelling at him. They say, say this, say this. And they had great authority. So as they said all those things, this man, I'm sure, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say. And I guess he thought for a minute, and he said this. I don't know whether Jesus is a sinner or not. But this one thing I do know. I was blind, and now I can see. Now I can see. In verse 29, the Pharisees had all of the evidence before them, and they still rejected Jesus. Our minds made up, they said. We don't want to be confused by the facts. In verse 30, the word translated in some of your translations, marvelous thing, That is another New Testament word for miracle. Maybe in your translation it says miracle. What John was saying is that there were actually two miracles that day. The miracle of the healing of the blind man. That was obviously one. The other was the miracle of the Pharisees' unbelief. They were standing right there. They saw the whole thing. And they didn't believe. There was a miracle of the blind man who could now see and the miracle of the seeing Pharisees who were blind. The greatest miracle is not what Jesus can do. Jesus is the Son of God. He can do anything. He's not held back by anything. He can do anything that he chooses to do. The greatest miracle is that people in the first century and in the 21st century can see that what Jesus has done and realize who Jesus is and still reject him. Every redeemed Christian is living proof of the healing power of Christ. Over and over again, he has done what he did in this story. Bring light to the darkness of human life. Surely, we're not going to be like the Pharisees who saw what he had done, who saw what he was, and refused to believe. Today, if there are those in the house that have never trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, We hope that today will be the day we preach every Sunday if there would be one in the house that has never 
said, Lord, please forgive me of my sins and let me place my faith and my trust in you. If you'd like to do that today, if you'd like to take a stand for the Lord Jesus who died for you, we pray that you would. We're going to sing a hymn in just a moment. If you'd like to slip to the aisle and slip forward and take a stand for Jesus, that would just be wonderful. There are some people in the house today that have been Christians for a long, long time. You've served the Lord in various ways. Maybe you've moved to the community or you've just uh, been here a short while, but you're here today. And you realize that you need to be founded in a Bible-believing, teaching church. You need to be in a place where there is growth, spiritual growth taking place all the time. And we want to help in any way that we can. We stand ready to do that. If the Lord would lead you to come and to join with us, it would be a blessing to us and we hope a blessing to you. I'll be standing right down here at the front. We're going to sing as we sing. If you'd like to make a decision for Christ, just slip to the aisle and slip down to the front. Let's stand together as we sing.